From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back, listeners, to The Dairy Show. I am your host, Katie Schmidt, and this week we are taking the, the podcast to the West Coast and having Todd Cook of TMK Creamery out in Oregon join us. So welcome to the podcast, Todd. Thanks for having us. Now, I, I follow you guys on Instagram, and that's where I've kind of been a part of the TMK Creamery journey from uh, the farm into the distillery and alcohol. So I'm excited to talk about that, but let's start at the beginning for you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what your relation is to agriculture and to dairy. I'm a first-generation dairy farmer. So we start, I started um, a 4-H project when I was 12 with uh, a Holstein heifer. Um, we always, I grew up with sheep and horses and, and um, bought that heifer. We were supposed to sell her before she started milking and, and didn't do that. And then uh, through a series of bad decisions, um, we're, we're, we are where we are now. <laughs> and where is now? You obviously have the dairy, but what does that look like? So yeah, so we're we're a small dairy farm. Uh, we milk uh, about twenty cows right now. We went to um, processing all our own milk to um, and into cheese and ice cream. Built an on-site creamery, and then we really wanted to focus our efforts on showcasing um, dairy cattle, dairy production, um, animal ag production uh, to the public. So we have we have open hours where people can go and. And visit the cow. We call them cow liberties. So visit the cow liberties, visit the junior cow liberties, and then see the process of cheese making, and and then have a opportunity to to buy and taste all the all the products. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna cover some of this. We're gonna step back though, because twelve year old Todd starting out with a dairy project in 4-H. How did that happen when you don't have that dairy background? So it was actually my grandfather. I was um, I was buying bottle calves and raising them, and I wanted to you know to make money. And um, he told me I should buy a dairy, uh, a registered Holstein heifer, and then sell her as a Springer because I could make a lot more money. I don't know how truthful he was in that statement, but that's what I ended up doing. And it's uh, well, it's been awesome. It's been a great experience for me. I mean, all my all my siblings got involved with the dairy farm, with the dairy cows, and and uh, my brother now is is basically manages the day to day ops with the cows, and then my sister's the head cheesemaker. So it's been great, and and we we have uh, I think tenth generation uh, descendants from that original heifer still at the farm. Wow! Oh, that is so cool. And so, did you find a dairy to like a site to take over, or did you get to build your own and and start from scratch? No, we started from scratch. We built our own. So me and my brothers and my dad poured the concrete, built the built the stanchions, built the barns, did everything. So yeah, started from scratch. Oh my goodness. And so stanchion barn. So tie stall cows are inside or are they uh live in that really nice coastal lifestyle of of in and out? Yeah, they got um so we have they're actually live a freestall life. So we have freestall barn. It's basically, you know, kind of I mean, they live like probably 90% of the other cows in the country. They, 
Um, we do have pasture, so we do, uh, you know, when, when it's possible to get them out on pasture, we actually give them an opportunity to be out or in so they can go lay out in the pasture, they can lay in the freestalls. And, and that's pretty awesome to, to do with the public when the public's there, because a lot of cows, you know, if you're managing your freestalls right, a lot of cows will come inside and lay in the freestalls versus laying out in the pasture. And people don't, when people see that firsthand, I mean, they get, they're pretty shocked that that's what they end up doing. Yeah. Yeah. So where does this, um, I'm going to call it a passion or at least an interest in general population, general public education and connection to agriculture, where does that come from for you? I think it's pride in what we do. And I think a lot of farmers have, you know, a lot of dairy farmers and a lot of farmers in general have pride in what they do. And I was, I always thought it was easier to show people than tell them. So we decided to open up the farm because we're proud of what we do. We think our cows live, we want them to live their best lives. We try really hard to create an environment for them to live their best lives. And we thought that it was a good opportunity to show that and share it with the public so that people can see what those cows do, how they live their lives how interactive they are with people and just just give them an opportunity to start with conversation on where their food comes from so if people have questions you know we want to give them an easy platform to be able to converse and get questions answered you know straight from the farm and who coined the term celebrity uh, it was my wife and one of her really good friends so yeah, so she, uh, Tessa, Tessa and Fred are pretty good and they're pretty talented and they do a lot, they do all, basically all of our marketing stuff. So we're, uh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be anywhere without them for sure. So how does the, the registered Holstein component play into your marketing or into your farm identity? Yeah, so the first heifer I bought was registered Holstein and, and actually the first calf that she had ended up I showed her and she ended up winning the state shows and stuff like that. And then she ended up winning uh, the senior two-year-old class at the Western National. And I ended up selling her. And I guess just through that experience, I got really excited about the the Holstein breed. And and I just found a passion for the Holstein cow. And so that's kind of just where it all started. What is the the guiding breeding philosophy or principle that you use today when selecting genetics? Um, it certainly has shifted, I think, uh, you know, over time. And I think that's probably every dairy farmer's philosophy a little bit. As we get more information and more knowledge, we always want to shift and we always want to make, I think the goal for all of us is to make a cow that's more comfortable in the environments that we're putting her in. And so if we can do that, you know, with genetic selection, we should be doing that. So a lot of our selection right now, I mean, we do select, um, we select all of our bulls that we select for right now are, are pulled. We do select for the A2A2. And then we also, because I'm a, a guy that likes phenotype, we select, you know, heavily for for good udders and, and nice looking cattle. Because when you're dealing with them every day, you still want them to look good. Yeah, yeah, you like a, a nice looking cow for the image for the your customers to come see as well. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's kind of shift towards the creamery side of things. When did that start? So we started um we started doing research on on building a creamery in in 2014. 
we needed to shift uh, what we were doing on the on the farm and how we were marketing. And, and basically, we just kind of at a crossroads whether we were going to keep the farm or not. And I guess uh, me and my siblings and, and Tessa were not interested in getting rid of the cows yet. So my sister was interested in making cheese. So we started exploring those opportunities and what that needed to look like and start developing a plan on how to move forward. We started making cheese in the spring of 2017. Yeah, and the rest is kind of history. In 2019, we actually won a silver medal in Italy with our cheese at the World Cheese uh, Awards there. And so we were super excited about that for, you know, just being in it for two years. And you mentioned ice cream too. When did that come into the picture? So we started the ice cream about a year after we started making cheese. And as we were kind of developing our agritourism aspect of it, we wanted to have, you know, ice cream there. So we do a lot of free tours for young people. And there's kind of, you know, for, for the young, for the young uh, kids, we, we get them out. They have to uh, feed a cow and pet a cow, and then they get a free ice cream cone at the end. So we had to make sure we had some ice cream there. What kind of cheese do you all focus on making? Like, what are the flavors or varieties? Mainly cheddar-based. So we do a lot of cheddars. Um, do a, we move a lot of cheddar curds to uh, some restaurants and then have well, the retail store. And then we do a little bit of Gouda and uh, a fromage blanc. And is that, I guess, how did you pick those types of cheeses? Just through our research, uh, before we even started the creamery, we were doing research at Oregon State University at their pilot plant, you know, working with recipes and stuff like that. So just through that kind of research and, and how we built the plant, those were kind of the things that worked the best for us. So um, that's, that's the avenue that we took. Okay. And so folks that listen to this podcast, they, they tend to, to love episodes like this, Todd, where it's that value add product. And I think that's because there's interest in people also doing something similar. So what are some of those steps that you took in starting the creamery beyond just like that baseline research of market, as well as recipe creation, we'll say? thing for us is that we had a really good core group, you know, between me and Tessa and my brother, Mark and Shauna, my sister, we had, you know, a really good core group that we're all willing to pull you know, on the rope in the same direction. And I think that's really important, especially starting this kind of venture. It's not, it, it, it certainly isn't an easy task, but you, you know, you, anybody can do it. You just got to be persistent and be willing to get out there and, and get the job and, you know, get the work in. But having good people is probably the number one thing, you know, looking back over it to be successful is you got to have people that are pulling on the rope in the same direction. And and um, that is absolutely the most crucial thing that we've we've found. I like that analogy of pulling on the rope in the same direction. What are some of the the qualities then that make people the, the right people to pull beside? You know, what what makes that team successful for you guys? Well, I think we all have a, you know, the the common goal and is is to be successful with the creamery and 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 TMK in general. And so, having a lot of communication about what's going on and what you're doing and what the goals are, and then putting a plan in place to, to get to those those end results are are crucial. And so, communication is probably key to that. And having people with the willingness and eagerness and motivation and passion to fit, you know, your, 
uh, ethos to 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 move that thing forward. So I think that was the biggest thing. I mean, everybody's has the same desire, so it makes it easier for us. I think. When did the distillery become a part of the plan? So once again, uh, Oregon State University. I call it the greatest university on the planet. Was doing some research. So that's a that's a little plug for Oregon State there. Was doing some uh, research on uh, way disposal and how in in doing fermentation and distillation on way for mainly for small smaller artisanal type creameries to make it easier to dispose of the way. And so I got the article and I was reading it. And I was like, and this was like 2019, I think. And I was like, okay, that's something I got to figure out because, you know, it's kind of a two prong approach. If it makes it more environmentally friendly to dispose of, and we're able to create another retail product from our initial raw product, then it's, it's a no brainer. And so we just kind of dove in and started trying to figure it out and figure out what, what it was going to take to make it happen. What were you doing with the way before starting the distillery? Uh, it was going through our nutrient management system. So basically our on-farm nutrient management system. Okay. So walk us through what this distillery looks like or how it functions and, and what you're making. We start with cheese making. So we take the curds off. We have whey, drain off the whey. We collect that and move it into our distillery, which is, it's basically, it's a really, it's just a, a room has fermentation tanks in it. Um, we'll put the whey in a fermentation tank and ferment it. And then once, and that takes five to seven days, and then we will um, move the, the fermented whey into another tank that will feed the still. And then once it's in there, we can run the still. We, have a, we built a, a continuous still that's kind of a custom design that we, I worked with a guy, a good friend of mine, and started hurricane distillation systems and we did a custom still to basically work with whey because we were still dealing with fat with lipids and proteins and so it was a a unique creature to distill and so from that we um we start the distillation process so and then you're so you're distilling the fermented whey uh vaporizing the alcohol to to get it off you're trying to collect um you basically collect about 192 proof alcohol off the still, and then it's filtered and, and uh, cut down and then bottled into, and we call it alcohol, but it's like, a, it's a vodka-like spirit. Sure. It's probably a good thing you're um, cutting that down because uh, 192 proof would put most people under the table, I think. Yeah, it can be a little hot. <laughs> so this continuous still, what's the the pro of doing something like that versus like a batch distilling. So what we found out was with the lipids and proteins that we're still dealing with doing like a direct heat source would scorch, it would scorch and it would make it really hard. It's really hard on the equipment and then it would make it really hard to harvest the alcohol off that you want to create a really nice spirit. And so that's why we tried, we built this still. It's kind of a combination of two different types of stills. And um, it, it's able to handle those fats and lipids and give you a really nice, a really, really nice alcohol at the end. So 
this is this was a crazy thing. I was um, I was trying to do some research on alcohol on vodkas, and I wanted to find the best vodkas in the world. And so I was out to changing wheel lines, and I was sitting in the field waiting for them to drain. And I I pulled the I just googled top vodkas in the world. This article came up by Mashed.com. It's the top thirty vodkas in the world. And so I'm scrolling through it, reading it, and I'm like, you know, checking out because I wanted to buy a couple bottles just to start tasting next to ours to see where we rank. And as I'm scrolling through, we actually showed up on the list. So yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty incredible. It was one of like the the moments that you have that I was like, oh my gosh. And I'm out in a field all by myself. I was like, this is incredible. <laughs> I hope you went back to the farm and grabbed a bottle to celebrate with the rest of the team by the end of the day. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, that was quite a uh, a sight. It was quite it was humbling, and it was um, it kind of made it, all the work kind of be worth it at the end. So when did you start bottling and selling the the alcohol? We actually started with the contract distiller. So right before COVID, we actually started um, with the contract distiller because we thought that was going to be way easier to get the product uh, to market because they already had the licensing and everything. And then once COVID, you know, and that was uh, October of 2019 is when we debuted. 2020, COVID hit, obviously, our distiller went to make the distiller that we were working with went to making hand sanitizer so we weren't in any production at all and it made it really hard and through the covid time we actually started thinking that it's just going to make more sense to have this distillery at the farm you know and especially where people can see it and, and have the opportunity to kind of connect to all the dots together and so then we started figuring out what it was going to take to bring the distillery on farm and start the distillery on farm we just started uh, basically distillery's license ready to go in in oct- no November of, of 2022, and we just started here um, in full production the the first of this year. So who? So your sister is the master cheesemaker. Who's the master distiller? That's me. That's you. <laughs> We're talking to the right guy. Okay, so I I will be the first to admit that I know basically nothing about the process of making alcohol. I enjoyed drinking it, but I don't know how it's made. What do the fats and lipids have to do with the the process of distilling whey into vodka? Well, they're they're actually just a problem. So they're just and they're just a consequence of making cheese. You still have some fats and and proteins left over from that process. So there is, and we actually are looking into this, some filtration that we can do to get rid of those and make it more streamlined from that standpoint. But as we are starting, you know, I mean, some of those, you know, even a small system's $100,000. So, I mean, you, uh, you know, we want to be able to make this stuff without having to do those filtrations. And so that's why we built the still to deal with those fats and proteins. So ideally, you wouldn't want to have them in there. So ideally, you would just want the lactose, which is the milk sugars that's left over in whey, and you would want to take the fats and and proteins out. And that's kind of what we're looking at right now. We want to, we're going to start a filtration system where we can pull those out. We can actually feed the fats and lipids or the fats and proteins back to the cows, and then um, we want to do like a reverse osmosis on on all of our effluent so that we can feed the water or give the water back to the cows as well. Oh, 
Oh, cool. Okay. How does the taste of alcohol compare to like a, a vodka I would buy here in Wisconsin? So probably made out of potatoes or something like that. It's actually really smooth. So, the, and I'm giving you this, I mean, obviously I'm going to say that it's really good, but we've had judges try it. And I mean, obviously it's been listed as a top 30 vodka in the world. So, you know, what the spirits judge tell me is that it's a really smooth, they call it a sipping vodka. So one that you don't normally, you wouldn't want to really mix with anything, but it's really smooth and then has almost like a, a like a caramel or a vanilla type finish to it. Interesting. And that's because of the the lactose that it's made out of or what causes that, that smooth finish or that, that caramel flavor? Yeah, that's what we're attributing it to. I mean, there's ways to filter, you know, that there's ways to filter out the, you know, and make a spirit completely neutral. We're trying to leave some components of what, you know, that what the spirit wants to be so that it has some, um, distinct differences to it. Um, and that's, I think, what we were trying to do with the process. And I think we achieved that. I, you know, I think it's a really, I think it's a really nice vodka. I mean, I'm not a huge vodka guy either, but through this process, I started learning a lot more about it. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to have to figure out how to buy a bottle. Do you guys do shipping or how, how do you um, distribute your product? Um, so, yeah, we, sh- we can only ship in Oregon as a distillery in Oregon, we do have a fulfillment center um, in New Jersey that um, ships to, I believe, 32 different states right now. Wow. So I'll have to look and see if, if Wisconsin is one of them and we'll <laughs> have to figure out how I can try some. Okay. So as, as you're going into this new venture, this new process, obviously distilling is very different, especially when we talk about distilling way where or how are you you learning about stuff like this besides Oregon State? Like, is there other resources available for you? You know, we <laughs> not necessarily. I, to me, all my stuff has been a lot of trial and error. I mean, we started, um, you know, before we debuted in 2019, I mean, it was a crash course in fermentation. It was a crash course in distillation. It was you know, just trying to learn everything you possibly could to figure out how you're going to get this thing to work. And then even from there, it's a con continual learning curve on uh, how this process works, what can make it more efficient, what, um, you know, and what's the best ways to do it. I mean, the, the still that we built is version, I think, 16. So we did 16 versions before this still that we actually have running in the, in the distillery now. and. Yeah, and it's it's it was um, you know it, it was a long it was basically four years of trial and error of trying to figure this out. What or was there ever a moment when you asked yourself if this was the right thing to be doing, or was there a moment when you're like, yes, absolutely, we are on the right path? You know, I think that's a daily thing. Almost is like you always feel like. You know, you have the days where you feel like you're really moving things forward, and then you have the days that really feel like they're kicking you backwards. And and I think, um, you know, the main thing is that if you're focused on what you're doing and you want to, you want it to succeed, you'll figure out how to move it forward. And I think that's where we were. There was definitely days where I was like, man, I don't know if I can get this done. You know, I mean, it's it's challenge and it's not a new thing. And and 
that was that's the problem is with the the way fermentation and distillation i mean it there's not a lot of people to source that can help you because a lot of people aren't doing it you know i mean and and that's you know i mean as far as we can tell we're the first uh way distillery there's certainly farmstead in the country so i mean you know there's not a lot of people you can go find to help you so you're you're grabbing bits and pieces wherever you can and then you're moving the thing forward where you think's the best and we thought it was important to do i mean i can tell you well i knew when i was i went to oregon state and i knew when i, I always thought when i was at oregon state man if i could get my dairy cows to make beer we'd be in a real good spot and uh i guess making cow calls just about as good yeah that sounds like a thought of a a college student absolutely so did you study food science todd or is this a a totally a new venture for you no it's totally new i was uh animal science pre-vet and then uh yeah so all this is a new 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 deal what was the the hardest part in starting something like this because it is so new to the industry? The hardest, if I went back to do it again, I would make sure and figure out all the licensing and regulations uh, to be a distillery, both federally and state, and make sure that you understand all those before you move forward. I mean, that's kind of... You know, all of our, you know, we kind of jumped in with two feet. We thought it was going to be easier to do it with the contract distiller, and and it really wasn't. But knowing those, uh, knowing what those hurdles are going to be federally and state-wise are a big deal, and making sure that you're, you know, you're willing to do those things. And then, uh, you know, now that, you know, there's there's more and more people that are doing some waste spirits, and so you you know you can you can get information now, and I think we're going to try, or we're putting together some some material because we've been getting a lot of people asking us about alcohol, how to process, you know, what the process is. We had Tess and I are actually putting together some um, some materials so that we can you know maybe have a webinar so you know instead of dealing with everybody one on one we can give uh, more people information if they want it. So that makes sense. There's a, there's enough cheese processors like on farm creameries that would have way to use. So it's kind of cool to hear that you're now going to find ways to support other small businesses and other entrepreneurs in other States. Is the department of agriculture, somebody that then you go to, to help with like the permitting part of it, or where do you have to go to, to learn about that distribution component on a state and federal level? So federal is TTB and that's pretty cut. I mean, that's a pretty simple process. It's, you know, I mean, you, you just go through the process. Um, states are all different with their liquor. So like Oregon's a control state. So it's a little bit different as far as like the process of what you're able to do and what you're able, you know, what you can't do. So from that standpoint, yeah, every state's kind of different. And then you do have to go through, for us, we have to go through, um, you know, a health inspection with the with the plant, with the distillery plant. So you do, um, our um, Oregon Department of Ag does, you know, basically all of our, our milk house, milk parlor. They do our creamery, they do the retail, they do the distillery now. So. Well, hey, I am excited to hear the, the materials that you guys put together and, and learn more as well. But 
Is there anything, Todd, that you want to share with listeners as we kind of wrap this all up of any additional advice or insight or words of wisdom, if you will, for for kind of starting down this path of really being an entrepreneur and a first-generation farmer? Well, I think it's just following your passion, and I think a lot of dairy farmers do that already. I think one of the things that, um, you know, as an industry, I think we've, you know, learning with the with our agritourism and the people that come out, we've really lost contact with, you know, reaching our end consumer and reaching them in a place where they're actually, where they're at, that they understand what's going on. And, and um, I think it's important for ag, the ag industry to get better connected with their end consumer and, and give them an opportunity to have conversation about what's going on and why it's going on. And, and I think people can deal with a lot of things you know, a lot of information that you give them as long as you're truthful with them. And so being honest and truthful with your consumers is the number one thing. And um, the ag industry needs to get back after it and make sure uh, we're touching, we're touching those, those in consumers and um, getting them excited about what we do and trusting the process of how it happens. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. And I'm happy to hear you guys are, are taking on some of that task out at your place and Hopefully others are as well, and uh, we'll we'll get there, right, all together. Absolutely. Todd, I have to say again, thank you for for being a part of the podcast and uh, sharing a little bit about TMK, and I look forward to finding a bottle somewhere and, and giving it a shot someday. Sounds great. We appreciate the time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you.